Actually, that's what I want to ask you today. Have you, have you ever been thirsty? And I don't mean just the, the average kind of thirst where, you know, a drink of water sounds good after a long walk. Maybe after working in the yard all day when it's hot. I mean really, really thirsty where your, your tongue sticks to the roof of your mouth. And all you can think about is finding a drink. Can you ever remember a time like that? I mean, do you really know what it means to be that thirsty? Or, or is it more likely that maybe you and I take water for granted? I mean, after all, you probably all have bottled water in your refrigerator right now, right? Some of you probably even have it here with you. There's a water cooler in the fellowship hall. There's two fountains out there in the narthex. And even the, the kitchen tap is, is ready and waiting, if you so desire, so that physically speaking, at the slightest twinge of thirst, it's not difficult to satisfy that craving, is it? But whether you've experienced it or not, medical experts will tell you that dehydration can get you into serious health problems in a big hurry. But you know that's equally true of spiritual dehydration, which is something that the scriptures point to repeatedly. And I want to show you a couple quick examples, like uh, the psalmist expressed this in Psalm 42. He writes, says, the deer longs for streams of water, so I long for you, O God. I thirst for God, the living God. When can I go and stand before him? Or Psalm 146.6 says, I lift my hands to you in prayer. I thirst for you as a parched land thirsts for rain. Because you see, just as bodily dehydration draws our, our whole being, our whole physical being to focus on just an ordinary drink, a spiritual thirstiness is going to draw our hearts to focus on the source of living water, the water that can only be found in a relationship, a relationship with a loving Heavenly Father. And we're going to see that today in our lectionary reading that takes us to a very familiar story in the Gospel of John. It's the story of the woman at the well from John chapter 4, beginning in verse 3. And John writes, And so he, meaning Jesus, left Judea and returned to Galilee. He had to go through Samaria on the way. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. And she said to Jesus, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who is speaking to you, you would ask me and I would give you living water. But sir, you don't have a, a rope or a bucket, she said, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? And he replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Oh, please, sir, she said, give me this water and then I'll never be thirsty again and I won't have to come here to get water. Go get your husband, Jesus told her. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. 
Jesus said, you're right, you don't have a husband. For you have had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship, while we Samaritans claim it is here on Mount Gerizim, where our ancestors worshipped? Jesus replied, believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming, indeed it's here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him in this way. For God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Amen? So there's, there's a whole lot of stuff going on in our really long gospel reading today, isn't there? And the truth is, we didn't quite read all of it. There's a little more to the story. But the one thing that I want to draw your attention to is the fact that in this story, Jesus talks more to this one Samaritan woman than he does to any other individual whose conversation is recorded in the New Testament. Think about that for a minute. And I think this is remarkable on several levels, the first of which is our Lord's treatment of women. And we've, we've talked about this more in-depth in other messages and more in-depth in Sunday school, but I think it's worth repeating that despite the charge of, of feminists over the years that Christianity and the God of the Bible is very uh, anti-female and horribly oppressive to women, nothing could be further from the truth. And our gospel reading today is a good example of that because it shows us that Jesus' treatment of women was very different from the cultural norms of his day. In fact, the reality is his actions and teachings actually have raised the status of women to unprecedented heights, not only then but now. And I point that out because just kind of a casual reading of that here doesn't really leap off the page. You don't exactly get that from the story in our Western culture. But what Jesus did here in this story was not just unusual, it was radical. <clears throat> I mean, think about it for a minute. In a day and time when the rabbinic tradition said that a man who talks to a woman in public brings evil on himself. And it went so far as to say a man is not even to greet a woman outside his family circle. And here we see Jesus is the one who started the conversation with her, with this woman in public, and that he's talking personally to an unrelated, unaccompanied woman in the middle of the afternoon, just as he would have to any man of his day. Think about that. Speaking to her plainly and calling her out of her sin and at the same time calling her to himself. It's incredible. Excuse me. <clears throat> Got a frog. As, as he offers this desperate woman now access to the life-giving stream that not only raises her up, and think about this, raises her up without ever excusing her lifestyle, but at the same time drowns all the prejudices and, and all of the preconceptions that have kept her on the outside of life looking in until now. And then that same thing can be said when it comes to Jesus' attitude about race and ethnicity. Because even though the world doesn't always treat people as equals, Jesus shows us that we are all equal in the eyes of God. And I don't want to belabor the point, but it's really good to, uh, 
to a vital understanding of this text and of what happens here, that to understand for a first century Jew, there wasn't much lower social status than being a woman, unless you were also a Samaritan woman. In which case, all Jewish men in general, and rabbis in particular, would literally have crossed the street to avoid any type of contact with one, much less strike up a conversation. And just so that you understand why, we have to do just a real quick history detour. So kind of by way of background, if you look back into history, about 900 years before this meeting between Jesus and the woman at the well, the Assyrian army had conquered Israel in battle and kidnapped literally thousands of Jews, taking them captive back to Assyria in order to keep an eye on them and to prevent rebellion in the country. Okay? So now with thousands and thousands of Jewish people gone from the land, that meant there's a lot of empty farms. There's a lot of empty houses. There's a lot of empty businesses. So very shrewdly, the Assyrian king brought people in from other countries he had conquered to fill that void, particularly to the city of Samaria, where they set up housekeeping, set up a new life, and also built a temple of their own on Mount Gerizim. So then when years later the Jews finally got to come back to the promised land, guess what happened? These Samaritans didn't want to leave. They didn't want to give back the land. And they didn't want to stop practicing their pagan worship and their worship of idols. So you can see why the Jews would have kind of held a hatred of them very deeply, right? And I tell this all to you so that you have a better understanding of the sense of the woman's surprise when Jesus asks her for a drink. And, and you can sense she's thinking, I mean, what is this, some, some kind of cruel joke at my expense? You see, and it, and it explains the, the suspicion and the, the challenge that woman had toward Jesus as their conversation starts to unfold. And she says to him, how can, can you, a, a Jewish man, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? Only to have Jesus reply, if you knew the gift of God and who was asking you for a drink, you would have asked me. and I'd give you some living water. And I really love how, how real and alive these stories are when you see the woman's reaction to this statement. Probably like you and I would react, right? From you got to picture this, an unusual comment from an unknown and an equally unusual stranger. And the woman's response to Jesus was as if she was receiving some type of challenge because she's thinking, if this whole interaction is going to be some kind of contest, I'm not going to lose it. So she jabs back at him and says, so let me get this straight. Now, now you're going to give me a drink. So tell me, uh, what are you going to use to dip the water out? You know, this well is pretty deep, and besides, in case you didn't know, it's a pretty important spot. It's special to us. So who do you think you are anyway? Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon be thirsty again, but those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a, a fresh, bubbling spring within, giving them eternal life. And now suddenly the woman's a little bit intrigued. She completely misunderstands what Jesus just said to her, but she's intrigued. And she lets down her guard just a little. And she says, oh, yeah, yeah that's, that's what I need. Then I, I won't ever get thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. And, and in her mind, she's probably thinking in her head, and then I won't have to worry about running into any of those women from the village who look down their noses at me. 
or any of those men who see me as either a worthless piece of garbage or maybe their next conquest. And she's working all this out in her mind, just letting her, her thoughts soar with all the possibilities of this new start until Jesus brings her crashing back down to reality when he says, go and get your husband. And her answer seems almost like a, a rapid-fire response, almost like a defense mechanism. Maybe even before Jesus can finish his sentence, she says, I don't have a husband. I don't have a husband. Now, over the centuries, commentators and preachers have focused on this woman's marital status, and I'm, I'm sure you've all heard sermons that have gone through it discussing you know, whether she was divorced five times, or maybe she was married and widowed five times, or maybe even that she had had five adulterous affairs with other men's husbands, and now she's on to number six. Right? We really don't know, and, and that's not even going to be the focus of my lesson, because no matter which way it was, none of these stories would ever be the one that any little girl would dream about for their future, would it? Not then and not now. Because no matter which way it was, in my opinion, is only incidental to the story because no matter how her life had progressed up to that point, the beauty of it is the master already knew all about it. And he reached out to her anyway. And, you know, in studying that and getting ready for the lesson, I think that idea is both comforting and frightening at the same time. Because if you think about it for a moment, what's it like to be fully known? What's it like for someone else to be privy to all the thoughts that go through your head? And have someone have access to the secrets you keep locked inside and to know all about your past? Because if we're honest, for most of us, the prospect of being completely transparent to other people, even people that we trust, is a bit unnerving, isn't it? We like to keep our secrets secret. We prefer to hold on to the story of our past and, and, and reveal it and deal it out at our own discretion. We don't like feeling exposed or shamed. And, and that's what's so beautiful about this message because here we find that although God has complete knowledge of us, total and complete knowledge, its purpose is very different from what we're afraid of because God's knowledge of us is not intended to condemn us to public shame but to convict our inner hearts and to hold open the possibility of a personal relationship with him, a relationship that calls us away from the messes and the mistakes of our past and into a future that Jesus said would become like a fresh bubbling spring, giving us eternal life, no matter how much of an outcast we had been before. And really, I think there's a lot of the Samaritan woman in all of us, don't you? There's an outsider in all of us. We're not all that we should be or all that we wish that we were. We've all done things in the past we wish we could change, maybe even things that we'll never be able to forget. And some of us have scars we think that we're the only ones who know about. And when we're all by ourselves, even when we try to keep ourselves busy by distracting our daily lives, hauling around buckets full of everyday concerns, we realize that we're not always who people think that we are. And that's what's going on inside the head of this Samaritan woman, because when Jesus first speaks to her, she assumes he doesn't know who she is or what she's done or the life that she's been through. But the truth is our Lord knows her very well and he demonstrates that he loves her just the same. And brothers and sisters, God knows who we are too. He knows all about our dark corners and he loves us anyway. And by his sovereign grace, he sets us free to live with joy and shows us that you and I 
are only as sick as the secrets that we try to keep. Especially if you think you can keep them from God. And so now that our heroine in the story feels like Jesus is getting a little too close to home with his questions, she employs a, a, a classic, dishonest, but classic tactic in conversation. What does she do? She changes the subject. You know what I mean when you're in a serious discussion with someone and maybe they start to feel like they're going to lose the argument on the merits, so they try to redirect and have you talk about something else? And, and she must have really been squirming inside because she goes for a real doozy. She says in verse 20, so, so tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship? Well, we Samaritans claim it's here on Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worshipped. So now she doesn't just try to change the topic of conversation. She lobs a hand grenade at Jesus. Right? She does the equivalent of something like asking a Southern Baptist if it's okay just to get sprinkled. Right? Or, or like asking a, a Catholic person what's so special about the Pope. Right? Or, or maybe casually suggesting to us congregationalists that we don't need to have so many potluck suppers and coffee fellowships. Okay? I mean, she really goes for it. But you know what? Our Lord sets us a great example, doesn't he? Because he doesn't get indignant. He doesn't get up on his high horse and say, well, you ignorant sinner, what kind of stupid question is that? No, he, he models what we should do and how we should act when folks ask us about the things of our faith or when other people try to push our buttons on issues of doctrine or when someone wants to keep the focus on all the things that divide us and keep us at each other's throats. Because Jesus looks at her and says in verse 21, Dear woman, dear woman, there's a time coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. The time is coming, indeed it's here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And Jesus' answer here is incredible because he's explaining to this ordinary Samaritan woman, this dear woman he calls her, something that even his own disciples didn't really fully understand yet but one that you and I have been looking at since we started this series together, looking at the link between our New Testament lectionary and the Old Testament, showing her that just as the living waters of Christ's presence drowned all those prejudices of race and gender, it also drowns the misconceptions that many people have about what the real worship of God looks like. And whether it consists of following a rigid set of rules and regulations in order to gain God's attention and his favor, or whether it's a growing relationship that, that's deepening, deepening in God and with God, and an experience of his sovereign grace that he has revealed to us since the very beginning. And that idea actually takes us to our Old Testament portion for today, the Torah portion assigned for this week, because if you remember, as we've been traveling through it together when we left off with each other two weeks ago, we were at the point where Moses received the Ten Commandments from the hand of God on Mount Sinai, right? You guys remember? And, you know, if you ask any Jewish man of Jesus' day or of our day, for that matter, they would most likely tell you that those Ten Commandments were the whole point of Moses' trip up the mountain. But what I want you to see today is that those Ten Commandments were actually only the beginning of the story of what God intended to do for his people and for us. Because the climax of the revelation on Mount Sinai is not the Ten Commandments. The climax of the 
the truth of God's love that's revealed is the instructions to build the tabernacle. The portable house of worship in which God would interact with his people and that he would fill with his glory. And that was the perfect picture and a foreshadowing of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And I would love to be able to read all of it to you, but it is very, very long. But I think just that fact demonstrates my point because the instructions for building this holy place, this incredibly specific and detailed sanctuary, takes up nearly half of the book of Exodus. It takes up from Exodus chapter 25, verse 1, through Exodus 40, verse 33. So in the little time I have left, I want to give you the Reader's Digest version, unless you guys are up for me reading it, because I'll do it. I don't see any takers. Okay. But what I want you to know from that, and I really encourage you to read it when you get a chance, what I want you to know from that, the tabernacle was an incredibly unique and beautiful place. The furnishings of it were adorned with gold that represented God's glory and and made from bronze that represented his judgment. The curtains that hung in it were were really colorful fabrics that were embroidered with all these fine linens that displayed God's power in creation, but that also curtained off the sacred and unapproachable place called the Holy of Holies. And I'm sure that the whole thing was, was beautiful and amazing to behold, but the beauty of the tabernacle wasn't really found in the the precious metals or in the fabric. The beauty of the tabernacle was that it was the place where God dwelt with his people. And in the way that the children of Israel knew that God was with them, that he was in their midst. And that's what the tabernacle and later the the big temple of Solomon in Jerusalem signified. The presence of God with his people. And the promise that one day God would make a way for all of his people, not just to that no God that had a temple in their midst, but that he would come to live inside their individual hearts. And that he was going to provide a Messiah to bring something better than a a sacred spot or a holy tent or a magnificent sanctuary, but to allow us to enjoy the overflowing presence of the living God dwelling within us. Because we're God's sanctuary now, fulfilling everything we see in the tabernacle that was just a shadow of the one to come. And that's when Jesus looks at the woman and says, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. That time he was talking about, that hour that was to be such a a seismic shift in the nature of worship is the hour of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Because when Jesus looked down from the cross and said, it's finished, everything in the tabernacle was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And that veil in the temple that had separated God from his people ripped in two and gave us a new and living access to the Father. And brothers and sisters, we're living in that time. We're living in that hour. We don't need a temple now in Jerusalem or on Mount Gerizim or in Zephyr Hills or anywhere else for that matter because our loving Savior took all of our poor choices and our checkered past and our persistent sins and he drowns them in his grace through the life-giving blood and water that flowed from a very different mountain, Mount Calvary, so that all of us, Every one of us, men and women and children from every tribe and tongue and race and nation can worship God not in a place, but in spirit and in truth. Amen? Let's pray together. God, our Father, we thank you that you don't confine your presence to a temple. Lord, we thank you that you've sent us your Son so that we can have that new and living access to your throne of grace, that that beautiful flow of water that you send us in your Son. And so, Father, we ask that you would be with us, Lord, as we go out into this week. We ask that you would watch over us, Lord, and 
and make us a, a living witness and a testimony to all of those who you are seeking and sending out your grace to. And we'll be just honoring and thanking you, Father, in all that you do. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.